Welcome to Clearly KC. I'm Melissa Barnett, and I'm thrilled to have Dr. Song join me today. Dr. Song is a board-certified pediatric and adult allergist who practices in Orange County. He is a diplomate of the American Academy of Allergy and Immunology. Dr. Song obtained his medical degree from the University of Washington and then completed his internal medicine residency, nephrology fellowship, and allergy and immunology fellowship at the University of California. Welcome, Dr. Thank you, Dr. Barnett. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast with you, and I look forward to our discussion on allergies and how it relates to keratoconus. Wonderful. You're in Southern California, but I'm in Northern California, and it is prime allergy time here. And I've heard it's also prime allergy time around the country. So what are some of the different types of environmental allergens? So we, as allergists, we typically will divide environmental allergens into two categories, the seasonal allergens and perennial allergens. And the perennial allergens are typically thought of as being year-round, and this would include animal danders, dust mites, mold spores, and cockroaches. And the seasonal allergens, these are the pollens. These are typically grass, tree, and weed pollens. And in California, our tree pollens start in January, and they peak in the springtime. And then the grass pollens start late spring, and they move into the summer. And then weed pollens start in the late summer, and they peak in the fall. But there are geographic variations. As you mentioned, I live in Orange County, California, and our trees start pollinating in January. The type of pollen also varies depending on your geographic location. In Southern California, we have Bermuda grass pollen that is not found in other areas, northern states where the regions are much colder. And we've also learned that with the change in climate and weather patterns, the duration of pollen season is probably longer, and most areas have much higher pollen counts. According to the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, allergy season starts about 20 days earlier and lasts about 10 days longer, and pollen levels have increased by 21% compared with data from 1990. Wow, that's incredible. So all year round, this is affecting all of us. Is that correct? That's correct. The perennial allergens, again, the dog cat, animal dander allergy, dust mites, these are perennial allergens, whereas the seasonal allergens, again, the pollens, tend to have geographic variations, but primarily spring, summer, and fall. So I have to ask you about cockroaches, since you mentioned allergies to cockroaches. I've never heard about that before. Tell us more. Yeah, cockroaches and dust mites are arthropods, and they're both considered perennial allergens. The allergen from these dust mites and cockroaches can be from the body parts, but also from the fecal proteins. Dust mites are probably more important than cockroaches because these are microscopic arthropods that we can't see, but we all have inside our homes. They're too small to be seen with their naked eye, but we all have them. Uh, They don't sting or bite us. And otherwise, dust mites uh, are harmless to humans. But they are commonly found in carpet, curtain, fabric, furniture. But the highest exposure is probably from your pillow and mattress. 
the average mattress may contain up to one and a half million dust mites. Wow. Yeah. And their food sources are human skin, our dander, which we shed onto the floor, into the bed. Their water source is actually from the atmosphere. They absorb water from the air. And this is probably why they do better in warm and humid environments. I'm learning so much. I knew I would learn a lot on this one, but I am learning so much. And we're going to get into how to manage this in a little bit. But I have another question for you, Dr. Song. My kids have been tested for allergies by different methods. What is the most accurate way to test for environmental allergens? So there are two basic methods. We either can skin test or assess by laboratory tests. And skin testing is the preferred modality as it's easily performed and it's more accurate than the blood test. The skin test is done in the allergy office and it can be performed on the patient's back or the arms. And we use a very small puncture device to prick the surface of the skin with a small amount of allergen on the tip. After we puncture or prick the skin, we wait 15 minutes and then we interpret the results. If a patient is allergic to a specific allergen, then a hive-like red itchy bump develops at that test site. Skin tests are the preferred modality. Again, only allergists can do this. Labs are another way to assess for environmental allergens. This can be ordered by any physician, and typically the orders are brought to your local lab like Quest Diagnostics or LabCorp. I prefer to order labs for several reasons. One might be that the patient has let's say an active rash or tattoos covering the test sites. So again, we can use the arms or the back, but if they're covered with an active rash or tattoos, we cannot utilize that test site. And also another common reason is for patients who are not able to stop antihistamines. This is a requirement for skin testing because we're trying to induce a hive-like reaction. If a patient is taking an antihistamine, this can suppress the results of the skin test. How long does antihistamine have to be stopped prior to the skin test? We recommend antihistamines to be stopped five days prior to skin testing. And as you can imagine, Dr. Barnett, this might be difficult for some patients who might flare up their allergy symptoms. So sometimes we have to order a blood test for that group of patients because they do not have to be off antihistamines for a lab test, but they do for the skin test. Interesting. And in your practice, who performs the skin test and how long does it take? Typically, medical assistants are staffing the offices and performing the skin test. Some clinics have registered nurses and LVNs, but essentially anyone from a medical assistant to the physicians can do the skin test. The test takes about a half hour visit. Uh, The actual test takes only 15 minutes. And we will prep the area, typically the arms or the back, clean it up with some rubbing alcohol, use these small puncture devices. They're not needles, so there's no blood from the skin testing. And once we apply the skin test, we set the timer for 15 minutes. And during that 15 minutes, if the patient has an allergy to that specific allergen, they start to hide up. So pretty quick visit. Wow, fascinating. So this podcast, Clearly KC, is all about keratoconus. So that's what we're going to dive into now. But what type of different atopic conditions do you see in your practice in general? As allergists, we use this term atopic to refer to a patient who is 
genetically predisposed to developing allergies to food or environmental allergens. And so the most common atopic conditions we see in my practice are asthma, you know, food allergies to common foods, peanut, tree nuts, fish, shellfish, fish, eggs, dairy, and soy. And we also see atopic dermatitis, which is an intensely itchy type of eczema that typically begins in childhood. But the most important atopic condition that we see as allergists as it relates to keratoconus is nasal and ocular allergies. The mechanism for this association between keratoconus and allergic disorders, I don't believe is known, but probably rubbing of the eyes is an important consideration. The patients with nasal and ocular allergies tend to rub their eyes often, and this rubbing of the eyes is a clear risk factor for keratoconus. That is for sure. Dr. Song, we know that people with keratoconus have a higher prevalence of atopic conditions. What are your specific strategies for managing these conditions associated with keratoconus? So I generally have four different categories for management options for my patients. The first one is important for all patients, and it's to discuss avoidance measures. The second option is for patients to use some sort of a saline, either nasal saline spray or saline irrigation. Third option is allergy medications, both topical and oral medications, nasal sprays, eye drops. And the final option that we discuss with patients is immunotherapy, which is allergy shots, where we attempt to desensitize the patient to a specific allergen which we try to induce a tolerance state for patients with allergies. And do you ever use these in combination, your four strategies? Yes, absolutely. For patients in my clinic, we discuss options for them. Some patients don't like eye drops and prefer oral medications. Some patients don't like nose sprays or refuse to do the saline. And patients who are really are averse to medications or who want to minimize medications may choose to do allergy shots. And you also mentioned the avoidance technique. So what sort of strategies do you recommend for avoidance? It's an avoidance measure, key component to the management of patients with allergic conditions. And more specifically, I can go over pet allergens. The best advice for pets is probably to remove the pet from your home or at a minimum, keep the pets out of the patient's bedroom. Air purifiers may have some modest benefit, but typically they're best used if they're on continuously and used over long periods of time. And finally, for pets, we do recommend bathing the pet regularly, ideally once a week, but of course this is hard for a lot of animals, especially cats, but that is recommended to bathe bathe the pets regularly. Now, for dust mites, again, another very important allergen, a perennial allergen, there are several avoidance measures to consider. The most important probably is to encase your pillows, mattress, and box spring with special impermeable dust mite covers. These are tightly woven encasings that zip around the entire pillow and mattress. And these aren't comfortable to sleep on, so you don't sleep directly on these encasings. You would use your regular sheets to sleep on over that. And then with your regular cotton sheets and blankets, we do recommend you wash them in hot water. 130 degrees has been shown to help kill dust mites. And we also then recommend you dry them thoroughly. 
And we also recommend avoiding the use of a humidifier. Dust mites and molds tend to grow more with the humid environment. As I mentioned, dust mites absorb the water from the air. An increased humid environment can promote dust mite growth. So we don't recommend humidifiers, but we do want to target the indoor humidity to be 50% or lower. And then there are some costly measures that we don't always recommend to patients, but we do mention for dust mites if they want to remove all their carpet and replace it with a non-fabric carpeted substance such as wood or tile. And also if patients can afford removing their fabric furniture and replace it with vinyl or wood or leather, some non-fabric furniture. If avoidance measures for pollens, that's really difficult because it's unavoidable when you go outside. But when you're inside, we do recommend you close all the windows, especially on the windy days and during peak pollen season. And I also recommend that patients, when they come inside after an outdoor activity, to remove their clothing and ideally to take a shower immediately. So if you have a patient who has pollen allergy and they just got back from soccer practice, we ask them to remove their clothing, leave it in the laundry room and go immediately take a shower because the pollen collects on the clothes, your skin, your hair. And so removing clothing immediately and taking a shower can help. And inside the home too for pollens, although they are an outdoor allergen, they do come indoors. And most central HVAC systems have a filter over their intake vents. And so when you run the air conditioner, this can help filter the air and trap pollens. So air conditioning can be helpful too. That's great. Another one that I've heard of, and maybe this is entirely too simple, is removing shoes uh, prior to coming indoors. Is that something that's helpful? Yes, that's the same concept as removing your clothes. And also even animals that go out with you. They, you go outside and your animals can collect pollens and mold spores. Mold spores are primarily outdoors and they're found wherever there's vegetation and soil. So if you're doing an outdoor activity with an animal or you're doing a sport that you're in contact with the ground or grass, you're probably having mold spores as well as uh, pollens on your shoes, your clothes, your hair, your skin. So remove the shoes as well as the clothes and immediately take a bath or a shower. Along with your dog. Along with your dog. (laughs) (laughs) This is like such great information. I feel like we should all be taking notes and changing our lives now, especially here in Northern California. Wow. But I know it's all over. I have another question. How prevalent are allergic rhinitis and ocular eye allergies? In our practices, we see ocular allergies all the time. Yes, both nasal and ocular allergies are common chronic conditions, and they typically present in childhood or in adult life. And overall, allergies are estimated to be the sixth leading cause of chronic illness in the U.S. And allergic rhinitis or nasal allergies is estimated to affect up to 10 to 30 percent of the U.S. population. Allergic conjunctivitis, ocular allergies is estimated to affect at least 20% of the population on an annual basis. Wow. And it's important to note that it's unusual for patients to develop significant environmental allergies before two years of age. 
and also unusual to develop new onset allergies much later in adult life, with the exception of a patient who introduces a new pet to their home. Typically, new onset allergies is not common before two years of age and much later in adult life. I have a question on that here in Davis. There are many people that come and move here and don't have any allergies at all. And then after being here for three or four years, develop significant allergies. Is that something that's unusual? Not really. The probable reason for that is it takes several seasons to be sensitized to pollens. That's one reason we don't see little one-year and two-year-olds with pollen allergy. It takes several seasons to be sensitized. And so if someone comes from a different geographical area, the first two, three years may be great because they're not sensitized to the local pollens. But over time, over several seasons, they may get sensitized to the local pollens, the geographical pollens. And so that's not unusual to see onset of symptoms after several years. That's good because we all say, oh, it, this is normal, but now I know why. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Sung, I have a question. What is new on the horizon in the allergy world that we should know about? So for many of the atopic conditions, we have this group of therapies that are referred to as biologic therapies or therapies that are targeted to certain molecules. For example, we have biologics that have been approved for asthma, atopic dermatitis, nasal polyps, and chronic urticaria. And there's four or five of these that work by different mechanisms. Some block the IgE antibody. Homoluzumab is a biologic that blocks the IgE antibody. And then we have a number of projects that have been approved for asthma that block the IL-4 receptor and IL-13 receptor, and a couple others that block the IL-5 receptor. And some of these have been approved for atopic dermatitis and nasal polyps. And these targeted therapies are generally reserved for patients who have severe disease, for patients who have severe asthma, uncontrolled and high-dose medications, severe eczema that's not controlled on topical steroids, nasal polyps, and chronic urticaria also not controlled with medical therapy. All these biological therapies are injectable therapies too. Some we do in the office and some are done at home. There are these auto pens that patients can inject with, but for the majority of my patients, they prefer to have it done in our office. Wow, that's fascinating. And how often do they need the injections? They vary from two to six weeks for atopic dermatitis and for chronic urticaria. The injectable goes from two to four weeks. And for the asthma therapies, the biologics for asthma can go from anywhere from two to six weeks. Fascinating. Wow, there's so much great information here. One final question for you because this podcast, Clearly KC, is for people with keratoconus as well. What are some parting words and advice? As an allergist, I think controlling nasal and ocular symptoms is important for keratoconus to reduce, at a minimum, rubbing of the eyes. And so 
So they are correlated, a higher prevalence, again, we see with patients with keratoconus having these atopic conditions. And generally speaking, the therapies for nasal and ocular symptoms are inexpensive, generally effective, and they have a good safety profile. Nasal sprays that are antihistamines or nasal glucocorticoids or the oral antihistamines all can be found over the counter now. And generally, again, are safe at the recommended doses. So I think for patients with keratoconus, controlling their nasal and ocular allergies will help them to minimize that urge, the tendency to rub their eyes. And again, all these treatment options are available over the counter. Of course, allergists are always available if you want to specifically identify what you're allergic to, and if you have not had good treatment with over-the-counter medications. Dr. Song, thank you so much. There have been so many pearls that I've learned, and I hope everyone else has learned as well. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you all for listening to Clearly KC, so you can find it on many platforms, and please subscribe. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Dr. Barnett. I enjoyed being on the podcast with you.